We're going to turn tonight to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin reading at verse 13, 2 Peter chapter 3. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, Look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us tonight that we might understand a few things that will indeed help us and enable us to live with a, a great measure of confidence in this world as we seek to serve you. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The title of this message tonight is Things Hard to Be Understood. Things Hard to Be Understood. It's not because these things are hard to be understood. As we're going to see in this message, it's because people do not want to understand it. The reason I know this is because of what the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true. Even in his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. And so what we learn here is something of a contrast. Peter is talking about how Paul wrote things that were hard to be understood. But the Apostle John said, he has given us an understanding. So, what makes it hard? I can tell you what makes it hard. The same thing that it makes it hard sometimes to get along with other people in this world who disagree with us. Have you ever noticed when somebody says to you, I don't agree? 
Have you ever noticed how defense mechanisms immediately come up and you try to justify what you've said or what you've done? I know that experience because I've done it many times. I'm very familiar with defense mechanisms. And the reason I am is because I'm proud by nature. But the truth is, so are you. We're all that way. Everybody that is born with a human nature is proud. By nature, we're proud. We're very proud of what we know. And so when somebody comes along and puts in jeopardy what we think we know so well, defense mechanisms come out. Well, this passage is talking about not defense mechanisms practiced toward our fellow man. It's talking about defense mechanisms toward God. And that's the problem. The reason there are things hard to be understood is because we do not want to believe it's true. We do not. And so defense mechanisms come out and we try to justify our view of true religion or truth or right and wrong the way we see it, not the way God has revealed it. And that's the problem. Folks, I'm telling you, next time you read this passage right here, don't fall into the error that I have slipped into over the years of practicing defense mechanisms against God. Because I didn't understand certain things in the Bible that just sort of rubbed me the wrong way, and I would, under, I would think to myself, why would God say that? Why would God do things like that? And so his thoughts did not match up with my thoughts, but as we have learned recently in studies, our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And our ways are not God's ways. And so when he says things that are hard to be understood, it's not because... He's not a scholar in terms of presenting the thoughts of his mind. He is. If there's anyone who is a master of language, it's the author of language. The alpha and the omega. The beginning and the end of all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. He is a genius at writing. And he has given us a book that he is the author of. And when we read what he has to say, and we read it and it's hard to be understood, we need to understand why it's hard. It's because we don't agree with it. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and we are mystified as to why his thoughts are not like our thoughts. But you see, we're without excuse. Because God has given us an understanding. That we may know him, listen to this, that is true. We're not the truth. He 
is the truth. He is the truth. And we are in him that is true. Even in his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. So who's got a problem? It's not God. It's us. So our studies tonight are not going to focus really on this passage per se. We're going to go to the book of Romans. Because in the book of Romans, we find some of those things that traditionally have been thought to be things hard to be understood. A couple of them I want to tell you about in advance. It's what's been known as predestination or election. These things are hard to be understood by people. And it's amazing that people do not understand the simplicity that is in those chapters, chapters 8 and 9 of Romans. That's where that's talked about, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. But I want to tell you just a few things at the outset, and I'm going to go over these things quickly. We do not have time. I wish we did have time to really study these thoughts because I'm telling you, these things have helped me personally uh, in ways I don't have time to, to explain either. But these thoughts have been a blessing to me over the years. And it's a result of coming to a point in my thoughts that I actually understood Second Peter Chapter 3 and that portion that we just read. There were things that were hard for me to understand because it didn't fit my way of thinking. And I wanted to convert God into thinking the way I think rather than him convert me into the way he thinks. And that is the conversion contest that spans the entire Bible, from Genesis to the end of Revelation, where the Lord warns us not to add to or take away from his word. Well, why would he say that? As a last thought on his mind before he closed the volume of his revelation from heaven. Why would he say that? Do not add to my word. Do not take away from my word. Do not privately interpret my word. Why did he say that? Because you see, that's our defense mechanisms against him. We do not like the way God thinks. We sure do not. And when his thoughts get in the way of the way we want life to be, then we become defensive of the way we want life to be. And so we invent another Jesus, and it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And this is why Paul said that we corrupt 
the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. Folks, the reason it's hard to be understood is because we don't want to believe that's true. We want to believe the way we think is true. And so Paul went on to say, this is why the churches preach another Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible because they don't agree with the Jesus of the Bible. That's why other churches have other versions of the Bible. It's because they're privately interpreting God to be the way they want him to be and to say things the way they think he should have spoken because they are the scholars and he is not. Boy, I'm telling you, what kind of pride is that? That is pride beyond imagination. And it's the kind of pride that will send you to hell forever. It sure is. It's dangerous. And that's what Peter was talking about when he said that there are those who rest the scriptures to their own destruction. Folks, let me tell you something. The most dangerous thing you can ever do is read the Bible and let your personal defense mechanisms come out against God and you end up converting God into being the kind of God you want him to be. That's the most dangerous thing in the world. And this is what Peter is really warning readers of Paul's writings about. And he wrote 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. 14 of them. And so when people read it, I'm going to tell you what. It will destroy life the way you want it to be. It sure will. Because God is in, interested in converting us to have his mind. Converting us to have his ways and not the other way around. So as I go through the thoughts in this message, I want you to sit there and think about something. How do you want Jesus Christ to be? What do you think is going to make you happy? What does make you happy? Is it what makes God happy? Well, maybe pursuing what we think is going to make us happy is not his way. Maybe the way we're thinking are not his thoughts. We well, see, it'd be one thing if you were immortal, but we're not. We're all going to die. And we're going to stand before the only one that can get us out of the box. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. He sure is. And no one else is. No man cometh to the Father but by him. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So it's very important for us to study the book of Romans and ponder very, very carefully the things that seem to rub against the way we think and discover the simplicity of those hard things to be understood and realize that the only reason they're hard is because it's not the way we want it to be. 
and to remember that God has given us an understanding. So when Peter says Paul wrote things hard to be understood, when we read that God has given us an understanding, then why don't we have that understanding? And the answer is simple. Unbelief. We don't want it to be true. That's the reason for it. And so the scriptures teach us, in the book of Romans especially, and there's a number of verses, but I'm going to give you about eight things quickly that explain to us why we're without excuse. And the first one is this book right here. God has written us a book, the Bible, that no one, hardly any, anyone really, really reads and hardly anyone studies. Now that's tragic when you think about it. But what I just said to you is the reason that the, the way to death and destruction is through this wide gate on this broad road that leads to death and destruction. And there's going to be many that go in there at. It's because they don't read and study the Bible. Folks, this is the only source available to the human mind that teaches you how to live and how to die with hope. How to die with hope. Well, if death was the end of all things, then hope would be a meaningless term. Hope implies resurrection. Now, if we turn away from the message of heaven, I'm going to tell you this, and I hope you'll use it in talking with people. If you turn away from the message of this book, you are on your own without God and without his thoughts trying to sell to the world your way, your thoughts. And that is uh, why Paul's teaching was hard to be understood. It doesn't match the way we want it to be. And so the first reason that leaves us without excuse is the fact that God has revealed to us his word. In Romans chapter 1, if you look at verses 17 and 18, look at it. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Now what that means is the faith of God to the faith of man. So that we can have the faith of God. Because the faith of God is without element of doubt. The faith of man cannot have anything but doubt. You can never enter into the doctrine of eternal security with human faith. And so from faith to faith is explained to us right here in verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith from faith? Well, it's his faith he's talking about. To faith, which is the man on earth. And so if you want to have saving faith, 
then you have to have the faith that God has in himself to do what he said he would do. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now notice this, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Well, holding the truth in unrighteousness is not believing it. It's, it's a determination to convert God to think the way we do. And I'm here to tell you, he doesn't. He said he doesn't. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. So we better wake up on this and, and be able to explain the nature of the problem to people who come to this book and say, I don't understand it. That's why I use other versions, is because I don't understand this verse. No, this book was written on a fifth grade level. The reason people don't understand it is because they don't want to. Okay, the second reason the world is without excuse is explained to us in Romans 1 and verse 20. <clears throat> it's because of the evidence of creation, which is eternal. That's a lot of evidence, folks. <coughs> Because creation, even though they've got that web telescope out there now trying to find the, the end of the universe, and they haven't found the end of it. And the reason is because they're written. It's as eternal as God is eternal. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they're without excuse. Okay? God has given us two reasons already why we're without excuse. One, he's given us a book. He inspired it and preserved it. Number two, he created a visible manifestation of everything that he is as a person. Everything in creation is a study of the creator. So much so that he said that we can see, even though he's invisible, his eternal power, not limited power, eternal power, and Godhead, so that we're without excuse. Folks, there's no excuse for not understanding what man says things hard to be understood. They're not hard to understand. We need to understand why it's hard to understand. It's because we don't want it to be true. That's the reason. Okay, a third reason is conscience. And it's chapter 2 and verse 15 of Romans, which show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. God takes the initiative to put his law in our conscience. And there's not a man alive that doesn't have it. We know what's right and we know what's wrong. 
Because God has put it in our hearts. He sure has. And we're without excuse because of that. So no one can say, well, the, you know, the African Hottentot hasn't heard. No missionary has gotten over there. That's, that's foolishness. God is everywhere. And he's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And as uh, Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. It's not of the missionary. It's not of the preacher or the Bible teacher. If you want proof of that, where was the preacher, where was the missionary that witnessed Adam and Eve? Listen, the first message in the Bible is that salvation is of the Lord. There was no one to preach to Adam and Eve but Jesus Christ. And for us to be proud and think, well, we've got to get up there and preach that message or people are not going to get saved. We've got to send those missionaries out or we're going to be guilty of people going to hell. That's not, not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. Anybody that studies the Bible knows that what I'm saying is true. Jesus Christ has the greatest vested interest in the salvation of every soul on the face of the earth of anybody throughout human history or in the universe. And he is the one that died for us on the cross. It was not somebody else. It was not a neighbor. It was not your wife or your best friend. It was Jesus Christ. And this is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John 1, 9. This is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The world is without excuse when it comes to the message from heaven. And so God has written the truth in our hearts. A fourth reason we actually find in the book of Acts, chapter 26 and verse 26. It's easy to remember because it's Acts 26, 26. The Apostle Paul is testifying at the trial before Felix and Agrippa and Festus. Uh, and he's testifying about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's what he said. He said, this thing is not hidden. Because it was not done in a corner. What's he talking about? Well, I'll tell you what he's talking about. He's talking about high noon. That's what my Sunday school lesson has been about for the past couple of weeks. High noon. That's when the Lord met the woman at Samaria. High noon. Well, what happened at high noon? Well, as Brother Charles was preaching recently, the Lord was hung on the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning. And he hung up there until 3 in the afternoon. And at the sixth hour, that was high noon. Now, I want you to think about something. High noon on a hill. That's why Paul said this thing was not done in a corner. Jesus Christ died on a hill. At the most festive time in Jewish culture, the Passover. 
Several hundreds of thousands of people were there at Passover from all over everywhere. And there was Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth, hanging upon the cross of Calvary, high noon, broad open daylight. It was not hidden. The Lord doesn't like hiding things. He said the light should not be hidden under a bushel. You take the light and you put it on a hill. Ronald Reagan even spoke of America being a bright light on a shiny hill. What was he talking about? He was talking about the very foundation of, of Americanism. The Constitution is not the foundation of our nation. The Bible is the foundation of our nation. And the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution is based on the Bible. This nation was founded on the faith of God revealed to faith that is, man on earth and the founders of this country believed the faith of God and exchanged their faith, which has an element of doubt, for his faith, which is absolute. When God tells you he's going to do something, he does it, and you can count on it. When he says, I am the resurrection and life, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he says, believe us all this? The question for the world is, do we believe it? Well, I'll tell you one thing. A person that doesn't believe it is going to lose their soul forever. <coughs> Another thing is Romans chapter 10 and verse 8, if you'd like to look at this, I think it's worth it to know the location of some of this. I know I'm not going to finish this message. I, I, there's so much that I want to say. <laughs> there's no way, but I, I'm going to give you as much as I can in the time we have. But in Romans chapter 10, um, I want you to think about this. And I want you to understand why we're without excuse when it comes to the message from heaven and things that may be thought to be hard to understand. It's not hard to understand. It's the simplicity that's in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, not to say in thine heart, uh, who shall ascend into heaven, that is verse 6, that is to bring Christ down from above. In other words, the truth. I mean, we don't have to send a, 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 hobble, a hobo telescope out there or a web telescope out there to find the truth to bring it back to us. We don't have to do that. Jesus Christ came down. He was born in Bethlehem's manger. We just finished celebrating that. Tell us the truth. And Paul's saying... Don't go out there and say somebody got to come down and tell the truth because Christ came down and told the truth. Or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead? What he's saying is, don't sit around and scratch your head 
on what happens to a person after they die because there's no one qualified to tell you. No one but Jesus Christ because he was raised from the dead and he tells us what was on the other side. And so Paul goes on to say this. Now look at it, verse 8, because it's a powerful statement. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. <laughs> so Paul is saying, look, I'm preaching to you, and you're hearing it, and the words are going in your ear, and it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart if you'll let it get down there. And God's saving faith is that close to you. So, don't you think in your mind that God is far away, that he's way up there in the heavens? Paul says he's not way up there in the heavens. He came down. He wrote a book. He died on a hill, brought open daylight. He sure did. And he has sent preachers to preach the gospel. And his Holy Spirit has been it's here, even here in this place where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He is closer than anyone might ever think. But we don't want to understand this after our life is over. Folks, the time to understand these things is right now. Because if our defense mechanisms try to push it away, because we got a certain kind of lifestyle we want to live. That is the most dangerous thing in the world that you can do. And that's what Peter was talking about when he said that there are those who rest the scriptures to their own destruction. You don't want to destroy yourself. God has never sent anybody to hell. God has never really destroyed anybody. What destroys a person and causes them to lose their soul forever is unbelief. Because he is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Well, if a person doesn't repent, then guess what? They destroy themselves with their own free will, which is the most dangerous thing you could ever possess is freedom to choose. It's all over the scriptures, everywhere you turn. Verse 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's that simple. Not complicated. It's not hard. It's that simple. For, verse 10, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith... Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Verse 13, let's jump to that. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. 
So, what's the excuse? What's complicated about this? I don't think there's anything complicated about it. Now look at verse, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Well, is God going to do anything about that? Well, let's just read the scripture. And how shall they preach except they be sent? Sent by who? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Esaias saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But if a person doesn't want to hear it, life gets awfully complicated. The Bible becomes hard to understand, but it's because of unbelief. That's the only reason. We don't want to believe. Well, another reason people are without excuses because Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, and he said this, Study to show thyself approved unto God. I want to ask you something. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, I'm just making a statement. Get up every day and study this book right here. As though your eternal soul depends upon it. Because it does. And who is going to get up? Who is going to have the discipline to get up and study the only source of information available to the human mind concerning the eternity that's to come? And that way, by the way, could be tomorrow for any of us. It could be tonight. This could be the last day of our life today. I said one time in a message that when I go down Pennsylvania Avenue, I have certain things that I do to help me remember stuff. Like, I keep water by my bed, just like this, in a little bottle. And every once in a while, in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and I'll take a little drink. And I'll tell you why. Because it's something that I can do sometimes in the middle of the night to remind me of a man 2,000 years ago that begged for one drop. He didn't get it then, and he never will. 
and the person that turns away from the evidence of this book is never going to be able to have a drink of water. They're going to thirst forever. And by the way, it doesn't have anything to do with God. It has everything to do with a God who is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. But people perish because they rest the scriptures. To turn God into something they could live with that would be comfortable, big mistake. Big mistake. Well, oh, there's so many things. I, we don't have time to go into all of this. I, I'm going to have to jump into a couple of things here. Um, let's just go over to uh, Romans chapter 8, and we'll very quickly try to get into some of the most difficult things in the mind of people. Uh, Romans chapter 8, let's look at that. And let's look at verses uh, 28 and 29. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Very important to pay attention to every word. His purpose. Why do we live? It's either for our purpose or his purpose. But when his purpose gets in the way of our purpose, then our defense mechanisms come out and we try to justify why we're not going to turn away from our purpose and embrace his purpose. Then verse 29, and this is where it begins to be a real problem. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, I wish we had time to really get into this, but I'm going to give you the simplicity of it. And then you just have to think about it and study it on your own to see if I know what I am talking about. Predestination has to do with what causes the mercy and grace of God to find its place in your heart. It has to do with that. And it cannot find its place in a person's heart until their heart is broken over what God has to say about them. And he cannot be nigh a person whose heart is not broken and does not want to be converted. Psalm 34, 18. 
That's what it is. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Contrite means repentant spirit. God has predestinated the salvation of those who end up with a broken and a contrite heart. That is the simplicity of predestination. God has predestinated people who will not have a broken heart and repentant spirit to damnation. It's predestinated. So predestination is not an infringement on the free will. Predestination is a declaration from God about your eternal destiny if you do not believe on him. That's what predestination is. God does not create people to go to hell as some people preach it in their churches. Listen, I've got dear friends that believe in predestination the wrong way. And they believe that guilt lies at the feet of God himself who created people without a choice that he predestined them to go to heaven, some of them, and others to go to hell. That is not what the Bible teaches. Absolutely it's not. Predestination has to do with God's message from heaven. It's predestinated. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. If you do not believe on him, you'll be damned. That's what's predestinated. And that's how you understand predestination. But then let's go right quick to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, because we haven't got time to spend time explaining these things as much as I'd like to. But in chapter 9, oh, let's see, where should I go? Let's go to verse 10 of chapter 9. We're running out of time. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. So you had Abraham and Sarah, okay? He talks about that in the previous verses. But then, miraculously, Abraham and Sarah were able to have a child, and his name was Isaac. He's the one that Abraham took up on the mount and was going to sacrifice because God told him to do it, and Abraham was willing to do it. But Isaac uh, was given a wife by Abraham's servant. He went looking for a wife for Isaac. And the wife that he found was Rebecca. She was a beautiful woman, the Bible says. And she conceived, and they, she had twins. She had twins. And one of them was uh, Jacob, and the other one was Esau. But Esau was born first. He came out before Jacob did, so he was the firstborn. And so the birthright was supposed to be Esau's. But 
um, Jacob talked him into selling his birthright. And so Esau bought it. He sure did for a mess of pottage. He sure did. He sold his birthright. Well, what was the birthright? Well, the birthright was really the message of the Bible. It, it, it had to do with spiritual leadership. Well, what is spiritual leadership? Well, the birthright has to do with spiritual leadership. Well, what is spiritual leadership? Well, it's somebody that believes the Bible. It has to do with being born again. Birthright, birthright. Birthright from the dead to go to heaven forever. That's what birthright is. And that's what this is all about symbolically. And Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. He sure did. And so it tells us in verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children, now listen to this, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to, there's our word, election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. He said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. God said that before they were born. So, that lays blame at the feet of God, right? Because in the thought of election, God predetermined that he was going to love Jacob and hate Esau. And that's exactly how a multitude of people think about this passage. And it's so wrong. So wrong. The difference between those two boys right there, Jacob and Esau, was this. Jacob believed God. And God foreknew, now listen to this, because this is very important, it's a critical point to understand election and predestination. Foreknowledge is not determinative. Knowing that something is going to turn out a, a certain way does not affect the human will as far as choices are concerned. God would not be God if he did not foreknow the future on out into eternity. God does know. That's why the Bible is a prophetic book. God knows the future. But God knowing the future does not determine the future in terms of the choices that people will make. That's a critical factor that has to be understood to get this right. Foreknowledge is not determinative. What is determinative is free will choice. And Esau hated the birthright. He sure did. Enough to sell it. It was cheap to him. He had rather have life on this earth as a hunter than go out and kill deer and give his dad venison and stuff like that. That to him was what life was all about. What's life all about to you? What is life all about to me? 
Well, I'm going to tell you what life ought to be all about. It ought to be God-centered in terms of the answer to the question, why did God ever even create you? He didn't create you to come down here on this earth as some kind of playground to play around and have a good time for yourself. He created you for a reason, just like he did Jeremiah the prophet. He said, before I formed thee in the belly, I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. And God ordained that we be his witnesses in this world. He ordained that we study the scriptures and be able to go out and give every man that asketh us a reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. That's why he created us. That's why we live. That's why we exist. It's not to get up and go to work and make money so we can go out here and finance our will being done. We need to be concerned about God's will being done. And so when we read this passage right here, I'm telling you, people stumble all over this passage. I know good men that are in pulpits preaching today that are close friends of mine that I have sat down with and pleaded with them to understand this passage the way I'm trying to explain it tonight, which I, I'm sure it's pitiful effort, but I would so much for people that I love that they could enter into this and, and, and understand it the way I feel like the Lord has enabled me to understand it. To me, it's the simplest passage in the Bible. And the reason I know that is because God has given us an understanding. So that the things that are hard to be understood are not hard. They're not hard. What makes it hard is unbelief. It's unbelief, folks. I know that you're tired and I've gone long enough. I'm going to stop right here. Maybe at some later time we can look at this some more. I don't know. But um, please think about these things. And anytime you come across a passage that's a little bit difficult to understand, don't blame God. Because in this passage right here, Paul is anticipating that people are not going to understand. I, as a matter of fact, uh, you don't get mad with me. Uh, Romans chapter 9 and verse 14, I want to show it to you. Look at it. Look at it in your Bible. John chapter 9 and verse 14. Because this is important. I, I can't leave this out. Uh, Romans chapter 9 and verse 14. Right after he talks about Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Notice what he says next. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. He's anticipating that people are going to read that and blame God for Esau's future. And then he says in verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? You see this? 
Two times in this passage, he's anticipating that people are going to be upset with how God thinks because it does not mix with how they think that God ought to think. But folks, um, need to read that ninth chapter very carefully. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time we've had. Help us to understand these things. Help us to understand the reasons we might not. And to be very careful about going that direction. Help us to see the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus and your eternal love for us and what you endured upon the cross of Calvary, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. You're not a respecter of persons. It's all over the scriptures. And so any thought that we might have that would conflict with these simple declarations is an exposure of the hardness of our hearts. And that's the simplicity of the matter. So thank you for this church. Thank you for this congregation. And for this church family. And the love that you have for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.